Good morning and welcome again to our series Guideposts. My name is Dion and uh, if you see these, these rock cairns around here, uh, if you've ever been hiking, you know that these are, these are things that are left on, on trails for you when you don't have clear trail markers to help you guide your way. And we believe that God has left us many things that are meant to guide us on our journey to make sure that we don't, we don't get lost, we don't get ensnared. And uh, that's what the series is all about. So glad that you're here today. Now, uh, to start off today, I want to ask, did, did you know that in the state of Arizona, there's a law in the books that says that it is illegal to let your donkey sleep in your bathtub. It's true, it's on the books. Apparently you can bathe the donkey in the bathtub, it just can't sleep in there. Uh, In the state of Alabama, there is a law in the books that says it is illegal for you to wear a fake mustache in church if it causes laughter. It's a very specific law, right? Uh, no laughing in church due to fake mustaches. In my uh, home state of Michigan, I'm from Michigan, there's a law in the books that says that uh, it is illegal for a woman to cut her own hair without her husband's permission. Take that, International Women's Day. <laughs> Talk about equal pay in Michigan. You don't even have equal grooming rights, lady. So uh, lots of battles to fight. In New Jersey, there's a law in the books for men uh, that says that it is illegal for a man to knit during fishing season. I would have been fine if it just ended with illegal for a man to knit, but um, apparently during fishing season. So hide your needles, guys, when uh, you're knitting needles, that is, when you're, uh, when you're in fishing season. Uh, and then in our own state, Missouri, we've got some weird laws on the books. In Missouri, there's a law on the books that says it is illegal to drive in your car with an uncaged bear. <laughs> All bears must be caged in your car. So, uh, you know, weird laws on the books, and, you know, they're kind of fun to dig into. But it's not just laws in our states that are kind of odd. Uh, if you study the scriptures or even if you've uh, you know, listened to people's objections to the faith, often the issue is raised that there are some, there are some weird laws given by God in the scriptures. In fact, Leviticus, Leviticus 19 is a chapter where it is just bizarre law after bizarre law after bizarre law. Take a look at some of these. Uh, one of them is do not mate different kinds of animals. So, uh, that's interesting. Do not wear clothing woven, woven of two kinds of material. No cotton and polyester blends are allowed in the Bible. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip the edges of your beard. Wow. Uh, how about this? Do not cut your bodies for the dead, which is weird in and of itself, or put tattoo marks on yourselves. Some of you are looking at these saying, really, these things are, things are in the Bible? It's weird, and it is weird, but but here's what I find true, that bizarre laws aside, it's not just the crazy laws that we sometimes struggle with in society, in scripture, but I think we struggle with law, period, which is unfortunate because the law is an important guidepost that God has left for us, but most of us, we don't see it that way. See, when, when we think of laws, we tend, to, we tend to be bothered by them. We tend to find them kind of annoying or burdensome or a nuisance to us. And that's because most of the time when it comes to law, whether it's civil law or God's law, we don't understand, we haven't taken the time to learn the intention. See, if you don't understand the intention behind a law, then, then just laws are stupid, 25 miles per hour speed zone? Are you kidding me? Whose car can even go that slow? You have to work hard to go that slow. It's ridiculous. And sure, it may sound ridiculous until you realize that, that that's put there because you're in a school zone and kids could be running out in the street. Suddenly, not so ridiculous, right? 
Or they're out here saying that I got to get a permit to do work on my own house. That's crazy. It is crazy because I know what I'm doing. You know, no, no one's here to tell me. But at the same time, if you think about it and you say, well, if I'm buying a house, don't I want to know that these things were done up to some sort of standard? See, if, if we don't understand the intention behind a law, behind laws, behind God's law, then not only is it hard to listen to it and follow it and trust it, but inevitably what happens is we start to build up some animosity, some tension, some resentment, not just for the laws themselves, but for the one who gave the law. See, this is true in my journey. As, as a kid growing up in church and hearing all of the laws that uh, are in Scripture and then you know, becoming a college student and studying the Bible myself and reading things like Leviticus, you start to read those things and it starts to shape, if you don't understand the intention, it starts to shape your very view of God. At least, that's the story for me. Tell me if any of these things might even sound familiar to you. For me, I started to believe that God is arbitrary. There are all these laws, and, and some don't make sense. And, and you just start to get the picture that, that God has some things he likes and some things he doesn't like, and, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. He just picks some things and says those are good. He picks other things. He says they're bad. And, and it doesn't mean anything. It's totally random. It's totally arbitrary. Or maybe you start to believe that God is an authoritarian. I know that was true for me. So, yeah, I, I just made up these laws. They don't make any sense. But do what I say and don't question me. As if the laws of God are just a chance for him to power trip. Or uh, how about this, that God's standards are impossibly high? I know that I started to get the picture in my life that God was some kind of fanatic perfectionist. That he demands perfection from us knowing that we're not perfect. I mean, he knows we're not perfect, yet he demands perfection of us, even demands perfection for salvation. That God, God just, he, he demands perfection in everything. And I know people like that, I, I sometimes struggle with that and I started to believe, okay, that's who God is. He's, he is. he is a perfectionist. He can't handle anything that isn't perfect. Or uh, how about God is fundamentally disapproving, right? If, if he just creates arbitrary laws, there's no rhyme or reason. He demands that we obey. He's an authoritarian or a totalitarian. He creates standards that are impossibly high. He demands we reach them even though we can't reach them. Maybe that just means that God in his disposition is, is fundamentally disapproving. That's just kind of his attitude towards life. And so he creates all of this stuff for us so that eventually we start to see ourselves the way that he must see us, which is we are, we are miserable failures. And again, you know people who just, they look through the life with the lens of being disapproving. They look for what's wrong. They look for things to pick at and point at in people. Is that who God is? Or finally, I started to believe that maybe God was someone who just had a hero complex, you know, it's nice and all that he sent Jesus to save us, but if he sent Jesus to save us from a system that he created, if he put us on this hook and then later sent his son to get us off the hook, well, that's kind of weird, right? We're, we're supposed to love him and praise him and worship him and, and be so grateful that he rescued us from a system that he created, a system that we could never do right by anyway? See, see let me just ask you, is this a God that you would want to worship? Is this a someone? Is this a God that you would want to be love? Uh, that you'd want to love or be devoted to? Instead, what does this do? This picture of God it makes you feel small, doesn't it? And it makes you feel worthless. And it probably makes you feel a little bit afraid, maybe even terrified. 
and it does not draw us toward God, not me at least, I can testify, this is my story, it doesn't draw me toward God, instead it, it repulses me. And I think that's the story of a lot of people. Maybe that's even your story of, uh, of, of journeying with God and eventually getting this place where you just go, I, man, if, if this is who God is, I don't know that I can have any connection with that because just imagine treating your loved ones this way. Imagine treating your spouse or your kids or someone you love in your life, imagine treating them that way. It would be crazy, right? So is this who God is? See, I think sometimes we've, we've created a theology built around a God who looks a lot like this. And we've given him a pass to do these inexcusable things because he's God. We just kind of say, well, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. But, but I think we're sorely misguided. And I think it comes down to the fact that we've not taken the time to understand not just what God says, not his laws, but his intention behind his laws. See, we believe that law is bad. But over and over and over again in the scriptures, it tells us that the law is good. The law is good. And the reason we stop believing it's good is because we haven't taken the time to understand God's intention. Today, as uh, we get to to the intention behind God's law, this important guidepost for us, we're going to look at the best known, the most widely known laws that God gave throughout all of the scripture, I I think. Um, We're going to look at the Ten Commandments. Now, Most of us in this room, we know something about the Ten Commandments. Even if you can't name them in order, chances are you know one or two, right? In fact, if you know one, uh, if I ask you to shout one out, in fact, I will. I'm going to ask you to shout one out. Shout out a commandment and just show me that you know some of these. Shall not steal. Shall not kill. Shall not commit adultery. No other gods. Honor your parents. Yeah, so, so you guys know these, right? I mean, like in no time, that's the most response I've ever gotten out of you, ever. Like, we know the Ten Commandments. We know the Ten Commandments. We know what they say. We even know what they mean. We understand what they mean. Today, that's not what I want to look at. Instead, I want to understand the intention behind these words. And so we're going to go back to the very moment that these words were given. And we're going to understand not just what God was saying, but what God was doing, what his intention was for these words. So we're going to go to Exodus chapter 20 today, uh, page 75 here in your pew Bible. Uh, the words will be up here on the screen too as we go. But first, let me just give you some context before we dive in, okay? Exodus 20, these words, the Ten Commandments, they come about two months, about two months after God rescued the Israelites from Egypt. Now, some of you know that story. The Israelites were, were in Egypt and they were slaves and um, worse than being slaves. The Pharaoh had been starving them, working them day and night. He had been killing their babies, killing their sons. And they were living in a miserable existence. And so God, he, uh, he sent Moses with plagues to try to convince Pharaoh to let these slaves go. And, and Pharaoh finally was broken and he let them go. And, and so the Israelites left and he changed his mind and he chases after them. And, and God parts the Red Sea, Right? And the Israelites, they cross over the Red Sea, and, and then Pharaoh's armies are destroyed when the waters close over them. And, uh, and so God's people are set free, and then, now they're wandering around in the wilderness. And these events happen about two months after the parting of the Red Sea, after leaving Egypt, uh, where, where the people of God, they finally come to a mountain. The mountain's called Sinai or Horeb. And uh, God says, at this mountain, I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to introduce myself to you. You've seen my power. You've experienced my rescue. Now I want to introduce myself to you. So consecrate yourselves. Get ready. Prepare. And so the people do that. They they, they wash themselves. They fast. they, They get ready to meet God. They gather around this mountain. 
And the day comes when God is going gonna, is gonna to meet with them and, and, and God begins to descend on the mountain and it's like a thick cloud and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's the sound of a trumpet blast and people are, are freaking out. They're going, whoa. And then he speaks. It says, and God spoke all these words. Now notice this, uh, this, this right here, spoke these words. Here they're not called commandments. They're called commandments in another place, but here they're just words. And I want you to keep that in mind. It might be a signal of God's intention here. So he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So what's the first word? Usually we start here, right? You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment, at least the way we number it, that's the way it works out. But what's the first word that God speaks? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's not a command at all, is it? It's not a command at all. Instead, what is it? It's a reminder. More than a reminder, it's a statement of intention, right? See, God is preparing to meet with these people, to reveal himself, and he's saying, I just want you to remember, I just want you to remember, because this may get a little scary, I just want you to remember who I am, that I am the God who just brought you out of slavery, out of, out of this land of misery. I rescued you from that. See, see, what is it? It's a statement of intention. It's a reminder of who he is, that he is good, and so presumably whatever he's about to say is going to be good. See, if you think that these commandments And often we do. If you think that these commandments are are some way for us uh, to save ourselves, that if we could just do these things right, then we could save ourselves, or that these are demands that God gives that we might be perfect, that we might be lovable to him, or that you know following these laws is somehow our entry fee into salvation or a relationship with God, then explain this. Explain this. If you think that's what the role of the commandments are, if that's the intention behind them, explain this. How was it then that God could save them and rescue them first before ever speaking a word of command? Right. This is two months after their rescue. Two months after their rescue. God had come down and he had rescued them. He had saved them before he ever asked them to do a thing. See, if, if following the law is, is required for us to be lovable to God, to experience his salvation and rescue, then, then how do you explain this? That God saved them, rescued them first, and then two months later gets around to speaking these words. See, we get so confused on what the intention of the law is, but, but already God is making it clear that, that the law is God's way of showing us what's good for us. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of that land of slavery. Remember how bad it was? Remember how you were working all day and you had no dignity and you were being beaten and, and you were starving and they were killing off your boys? Do you, do you remember that? And I, I saved you from that. See, see, God is reminding them at the very beginning, his first word is that what he's about to say is good. Why? Because he's good. And when you understand this intention, it changes everything that we see or tend to believe about the law. Instead of becoming this bad thing, it becomes an important guidepost for it. So let's go on. You know, so, so I brought you out of slavery, out of this land of slavery, out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. He continues. He says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, I just got to say something here. The Bible makes clear, this is kind of confusing. The Bible makes clear in numerous places 
that God does not punish sons for the sins of their father. Instead, a better translation of this might be visiting the iniquity of children. Um, so, so, you know, like, like sin is a way of being generational. And, and the father says, I'm not going to shield people from their sins if they hate me, if they're out of a relationship with me. I'm not going to rescue them from their sins. But instead, I'll show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, three or four generations of, of sinners may experience hardship. A thousand generations of people who love me experience my blessing. Now, we get caught up in the judgment language here, but what is God saying? Think about it. He's saying, hey, I'm the guy who rescued you. I saved you. I brought you life. So, so don't, don't go and make an idol or an image and bow down and worship that thing because there's no life there. There's no rescue. There's no, it can't save you. It can't help you. It can't give you what I can. See, this isn't about God power tripping as much as it is him saying, hey, if, if you want to stay living in freedom and rescue, don't look anywhere else. You, you can't find that stuff anywhere else. He goes on. He says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God or take the name of the Lord your God in vain, sometimes foot. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Again, what is this about? This isn't about God just you know, being power trip or something, but he's saying, what is my name meant for? My name is a name for rescue and blessing and salvation. It's not a name that's meant to be lifted up for emptiness, or especially not a name that's meant to be used to curse others. Next, he says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days ye shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed, right? He blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Oh man, I got to go to church. God commands that I go to church. I got to rest. So we hear this stuff, right? And if, if I don't rest, if I don't go to church and God's mad at me, you're missing the intention. What does God say? He says, man, you're going to bust your tails in life. Six days a week, you, you can work. But, but I'm calling you to set aside a day to rest. Why? Because work, although it can be a great blessing in your life, it can, it can own you. Right? Your, your work, your calling, your vocation, as noble as it might be, it can become a thing that enslaves you. Your ambition can enslave you. Your, your productivity and desire to always be productive and always be on and always be producing, that will become a thing that ensnares you. It will, it will enslave you. Tell me you don't know about that. So again, what is God saying here? He's saying, I want you to take a day where you understand that you are loved and you have value, not because you're killing it, but just because you're mine. I want you to experience my blessing in rest, that you still have worth, you still have value. You see how the intention changes things? Next, it says, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. I mean, right here in the words, he says what it's about. 
And we all know that when things aren't well in our families, it's hard for things to go well in life. That, that, that's a source of huge pain and tension. And so God says, you want to have peace in the land I'm taking you to? Start by honoring people. Honor, honor your parents especially. Get along in your families so that you might be blessed in the land. And, and then look at these next few. We, we know these ones. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Are these just arbitrary things? Pointless things that God makes us do for no good reason? Of course not. So are these things that we have to do in order to save ourselves? To be perfect so God will love us? No, again, what is God saying? What is God saying? He's saying, hey, I, I want to show you a great way to live. A way to live that, that will be free. A way to live out your freedom that won't be at the expense of your neighbor's life, your, your neighbor's property, your neighbor's intimate relationships, your neighbor's reputation. There's a way you can live whole, but also not take away from the wholeness or freedom of anyone else. And then finishing up, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. See, what is this one about? It's it's about living with contentment, isn't it? See, God is saying something so wise to his people, he's saying, you can have everything in the world. But if you don't get a grip on your own sense of contentment, if you don't put to death greed and envy in your life, everything you have will never bring a true sense of joy or blessing to you. You will always have a mind for what you're missing, what you're lacking. Tell me you don't understand that. I know that one of the number one things this community as a whole talks about, one of the things that that we just can't understand, churched, unchurched, is how is it possible that we have so much and we know it, And yet we experience so little contentment, right? No matter how great your life is, if you don't, if you don't get a hold of contentment, if you don't put to death envy and greed, there's no life there. There's no freedom there. See, all of this stuff that God is speaking, it's about showing us how to live. It's, it's, it's showing us what's good. It's showing us how to use our freedom in a way that keeps us truly free. But here's the tragedy of all of this. God speaks these words. And watch how the Israelites respond. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance. This is a powerful picture. Hold on to this. I grew up in the church. Some of you maybe uh, have heard this too. I grew up in the church sometimes hearing that God is a holy God, he's a perfect God, and therefore he can't be around sin. That God has to keep himself away from sinners. That, that sinful people can't come into the presence of God. That, that, that it just doesn't work that way. That God can't tolerate that. And, and that, is, that, is, that is completely false. In fact, you see the opposite happening in scriptures over and over again, including right here. What is God doing? God is coming down to meet with a sinful, imperfect people. And, and he's coming down saying, I want to meet with you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. He's descending. And what are they doing? They're backing up, right? They're, they're keeping their distance. They're saying, wait a minute. We don't want anything to do this. God is moving toward them. They're the ones who are moving away. This isn't a God problem. This is an us problem. See, see the people are, are freaking out. They're, 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 they're trembling with fear. Uh, they stay at a distance. Uh, they said to Moses, speak to us yourself. And we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Do you see what's happening here? They they missed his intention. 
God's coming down to kill us. Really? Because I think he just rescued you less than two months ago. If he wanted you dead, he would have left you there. Why, why do we believe these things about God? Because, because God is powerful, he's, he's amazing, he's terrifying, I guess. But if we miss his heart, if we miss his intention, we get this all wrong. Now, now watch this. Moses tries to set this straight because Moses understands what's going on. And so Moses said to the people, no, 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 you got this all wrong. Don't be afraid, you're missing it. Understand what God's intention here. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Look at these words. Moses says, don't be afraid. God has come so that you might be afraid. But that's not actually what he's saying. He's saying, hey, don't be terrified. Don't back away. Don't be afraid of this, of this God. He has come to test you so that the reverence of God will be with you to keep you on this path of life. Do you hear what Moses is saying? See, they see this angry God, this judgmental God, this God who's coming down to kill them, this God that is, that is too holy for them, this God that is gonna just you know, blow them away. And Moses says, no, 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 you don't understand. God is trying to show you who he is, to remind you who he is, so that you will, you will revere him, you will trust his words, you'll listen to his instruction, and therefore you will stay on the path. You'll be guided toward the destination that you want to go to, trust me. He wants to take you to a good place. And his words, that's what they're there for, to take you to a good place. But the people, they're not having it. It says the people remained at a distance. They're backing up. While Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. See, the people completely misunderstood God's intention And so they turn these words that are meant to be life-giving words, words that show us how to live, show us what's good for us, show us what's good for our relationships with each other, our relationship with God, show us how to to live abundance, how to live fully, how to live a whole life, a wholehearted life. They, They hear these words that are intended for their good, and they assume, they assume that they're words that are meant to condemn or to shame or to make them, uh, feel like God is displeased or angry, a wrath-filled God. Ultimately, Uh, They let these words that are meant to give life, they let them fill their hearts with fear. Fear of the one who rescued them. And see, that will happen over and over again if you miss God's intention. It doesn't matter what he says. You'll hear it the wrong way. Paul talks about this actually in the New Testament. He says, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. If all you focus on is the meaning and the words and and the exact nature of the words and you get all caught up in the letter, it will kill you. It doesn't matter if it's a life-giving word. It will always have the same effect. It will bring death to you. It'll bring shame and condemnation and a sense of anger and displeasure. It'll make you run from God and stand at a distance. But Paul says it's the spirit, not just the spirit of God, but the heart or the intention behind the words. That's what gives life. See, the Israelites, they just didn't understand it, and so they made a whole mess of this thing. They got in this this adversarial relationship with God. They misunderstood his heart. The law became a big mess for them. They added laws upon laws upon laws because they thought it was all about the laws. And they missed the fact that God was just trying to bring them life. And don't we do the same? I mean, we sit here today at home, wherever you are. And we are people who have been brought under the greatest act of rescue ever. Right? 
We are people who have been rescued by the work of Jesus Christ. The Israelites, they were, they were terrified when God was coming down that mountain. They thought he was descending to kill them. And yet, what did God do in Jesus? He, he came down and he was willing to lay down his life to be killed, to show us that we've got him all wrong. He submitted to our wickedness, our violence. He didn't start a, a battle back and forth. He didn't launch a, a war. Instead, he submitted to our evil. He laid down his life to show us who he is, that he's good. And he's not out to smite us or destroy us or to take away our life or freedom. He's, he's only about giving it. Here we are sitting here today and we have been brought under the greatest rescue imaginable through, through the work of Jesus Christ where, where he, he redeems us. He, he buys our freedom from all the things that enslave us from our sin, from darkness, from evil, from death. We're sitting here today living under the greatest work of redemption ever. It's this work of Jesus that reconciles us to the Father, that shows us that we don't have to be terrified. We don't have to be slaves to fear. Our chains are broken. We're set free. We're, We're brought into relationship. We are loved. He gives us the right to call God our Father. And to know that he's good, to know that he is a loving and good father, the best father we could ever imagine, that's who he is. See, we've been brought under the greatest act of rescue, the greatest act of reconciliation ever. And and then we read in the New Testament, or somewhere in the Bible, God talking to us about our money and saying, hey, you know what, your money can be a great blessing in your life, but it also can become a thing that, that, that takes away your freedom. It ensnares you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to be generous with your money. Be generous with your treasures. Give 10% away. We hear that stuff and we're like, oh, the nerve. Can't believe God's telling me to give away my money. What's he thinking? I don't have enough money. Or, or we think, gosh, I just, I'm not there yet and I've got so many bills to pay and, and I think God is really frustrated. He must be really angry with me that I've not gotten this part of my life right because I've not been able to surrender this. We either think that God is trying to take something away from us or we're afraid that we've displeased God and that he's angry with us and so we feel condemned, we feel shamed, we feel God's displeasure, his wrath. Ultimately, we feel fear, right? We read in the Bible God telling us about how we are to treat our bodies, or he talks about our sexuality. Or he talks about how we're to manage our relationships. Or even our time, our priorities. And, uh, and we get all twisted up about that. Because we miss his intention, we, we might get self-righteous and think that somehow we're better than others because we've, we've got this stuff right. Or, or we fall into some sort of legalism where we start looking for loopholes or we just ignore him altogether. See, that's unfortunate. We're doing the same thing. We show with the same thing the Israelites did. God comes and he speaks words that are meant to give us life and we hear them differently. We miss, we miss his intention. See, God, he, he's made it clear through Jesus what he's about. He just wants to give you life. He wants you to have freedom so badly that he paid a high price for it. That's all. Can you begin to trust that? That that's all he wants? And so that's why he sent Jesus and that's why he's spoken words of instruction. That's why he's given you laws. I love what Steve Howard says. He says, the same God that gave us Jesus gave us the law. And then he adds on, and for the same reason, 
Not to take anything away from you, not so that you could save yourself or or be perfect. No, he he gave it to you so that you could have life. See, this is what God's laws are about, all of them, even the crazy ones in Leviticus, whether they're about public health or whether they're about uh, keeping free from from religious practices that don't jibe with the Christian faith, things that people have to do to themselves, like cut themselves for dead people or get tattoos to show allegiance to false gods. God's saying, you don't have to do that stuff. That's not a way to freedom. That's a way to slavery. I want you to be free. I've set you free. And I want you to stay that way. Just trust me. Just listen to me. And you will find life. See, why is this so important? It's so important because it's not until you understand God's intention that you'll trust his instruction. God can speak at you all day long. But it's not until you understand his intention, what he is all about for you, what he's always been about for humanity from the very beginning in the garden, it's not until you understand his intention that you will trust his instruction. And let me just tell you, if you don't trust his instruction, you're gonna live a hard life. If you ignore all the guideposts that he's left for you and you, and you expect that somehow you're gonna find a place of in- abundance, of fullness, of wholeness, and you're just kind of ignoring God, the one who actually knows, the one who can guide you, if you, if you just ignore that, then man, just... Don't worry about displeasing God or, or condemn. The reality is, if, if you do that, if you ignore his instruction, that you're going to wander off into all kinds of things that ensnare you, that enslave you, that take away your life, that take away your freedom, that inhibit your wholeness. It's not until you trust God's heart, his intention, and that it is always the same. It's not until then that you'll begin to trust his instruction. My prayer for us is that today we, we, will, we will get a fresh look at God's intention. That we'll see everything else that God says or does through the lens of the cross. And that we will become so convinced that God is for us, not against us, that he's on our side, that he loves us, that he is invested in our freedom. That we'll listen. In fact, let me pray. Father, I ask that you would banish from our minds every illusion, every imagination, every distortion of who you are and what you're about. Father, that you would extract those things from our minds and our hearts. And instead, at the very center of our being, you would put Jesus Christ crucified. This this act of grace and redemption and love and mercy this life-giving act that you have performed for us. Father, that you would put that at the base of who we are, at the, at the foundation of our relationship with you so that we can remember, we can know above all that you are a God whose intentions for us are good and you've shown us. And Father, I pray that after, after that kind of confidence in you, after you've placed that in our hearts, that we would then, knowing your intention, that we'd trust your word, that we'd listen to your instruction, that we would let you guide us through life, that we would not try to do this on our own. But instead, Father, that we would let you lead us toward a life that you know is truly life. Father, as we, uh, as we sing this song today that we're about to sing, uh, I pray that you would fix Jesus Christ in his grace in the center of our hearts, in the center of our being. And Father, that you would assure us, that you would assure us of your good intentions for us, of your deep, unfathomable love for us.
I pray this in Jesus. Amen.